You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 26th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. That spooktacular time of the year. Spooktacular day at Golden, Golden's Mines Museum ahead of Halloween by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Water bills go up again. Arvadans will pay about 12% more next year. Another big hike coming in Arvada Water Rates by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Adams, Jeffco, announced air quality monitoring event. EPA gives counties money to collect shared data with public. By Jane Reuter for the Arvada Press. Jefferson County officials partner with local businesses to offer discounts to early voters. By Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. That spooktacular time of the year. Spooktacular day at Golden's Mines Museum ahead of Halloween by Corinne Westman. Dinos and burrows and rocks, oh my. The Mines Museum of Earth Science isn't usually this scary. It transformed into a spooky scene at its annual Spooktacular, hosting more than 1,000 people, including 600 youngsters, most of them decked out in costumes. For veterans of the free events held on Saturday, Spooktacular was an old trick. For others, it was a new treat. The crowd was much bigger than the museum staff was expecting, Executive Director Renata Laffler said. Last year's drew about 700 people. Laffler was thankful for most of this year's spooktacular was outside, a contrast to prior years when the event was primarily in the building. The reason for the change was that attendees stopped at stations along the museum displays, but that created some congestion as groups waited for their turns. The fall weather was Perfect for the outdoor crowd this year, including Colorado School of Mines mascot Blaster the Burro and Mr. Bones the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Attendees visited face painting and pumpkin pie booths, pumpkin carving booths. There were also some good themed for science, including a geode cracking booth. Inside the museum displays were draped with cobwebs and other Halloween decorations as visitors picked up goodies and posed for photos. Laffler thanked the Morrison Natural History Museum, the U.S. Geological Survey, Miss Teen Colorado, and Miss Golden, and other local partners who helped make the event a success. Spooktacular is the Mines Museum's largest outreach event of the year and a great trick-or-treat alternative for children who can't have candy because of allergies, Laffler said. The museum and its partners endeavored to keep the event candy-free by putting together goodie bags of bouncy balls, stickers, and other fun items. 
The Mines Museum of Earth Science is free and open seven days a week. For more information on upcoming events and programming, visit mines.edu slash museum of earth science. Another big hike coming in Arvada Water Rates by Riley Dunn. For the second straight year, Arvadans will see their water bills rise. City Council approved a 12% increase to rates along with a $4 increase to bi-monthly service fees, adding about a $81 per year increase for single-family homes. The rate increase approved by the council on October 16th will take effect in 2024. As detailed last year, the city is raising fees so that it can update its aging water system. Arvada has two water treatment plants, the Ralston Water Treatment Plants built in the 1960s and the Arvada Water Treatment Plant built in the 1980s. Both plants have aging parts and other infrastructure that negatively impacts their efficiency and effectiveness and require repairs, Director of Utilities Sharon Israel said. Quotes, a lot of the fees are going to, towards repairing, repairing and replacing our existing system so we can continue to provide that high-quality water service, Israel said. Since last year, we have made progress at the Ralston plant, and we've been able to rebuild some of our filters. We've also done a lot of work on sewer lines this year and water replacements. Water line replacement, Israel added. We're doing some long-term forecasting for a new water treatment plant. We're making good progress, but there's still a lot to do. Israel said reinvestment into the plants is a priority and said replacing some of the original parts in the 40- to 60-year-old plants was vital to keeping the plants operational. Another driver of the fee increase was a separate rate established for the city by Denver Water, which supplies about 75% of Arvada's water. Arvada's helping to fund the Gross Reservoir Expansion Project, covering one-sixth of the cost. Israel said the city's investment in the reservoir expansion will provide enough water to support Arvada's growing population in the coming years. We're in a great position with water supply here in the city, and because we're making that contribution to the capital project at Gross Reservoir, we wanted to make sure that Arvada was paying a fair price compared to Denver Water customers who are not making that capital contribution, Israel said. We worked closely with Denver Water this year to make sure that we were paying a fair price, and it's actually slightly lower than what the other raw water customers will be paying. Last year's rates increased put Arvada's rates slightly above Broomfield and Denver in-city rates, but below Westminster, Boulder, Thornton, Golden, Aurora, Littleton, Lakewood, and Lafayette. With the increase this year, Arvada's roughly in the middle of that pack, with rates that are now higher than Westminster and Boulder, but below the rest of the aforementioned list. We're still very much right in the middle Israel said, we want to make sure that we're charging the lowest practical rates that we can. And we're still very competitive compared to everyone else. Israel said, any residents struggling to pay their bills should reach out to utilities, which offers grants and other financial assistance. In the last year, the department helped 141 households in the city get federal grant assistance. For more information, contact Utility Billing at 720-898-7070 or utiladmin at arvada.org.
Adams, Jeffco, announce air quality monitoring effort. EPA gives counties money to collect shared data with public. By Jane Reuter. On a sunny day that a North Glen air quality monitor rated good, federal, state, county, and local officials stood outside the North Glen Recreation Center to announce their expanding local air quality monitoring programs. Adams and Jefferson counties received $628,000 in Environmental Protection Agency EPA grants to add more monitors and make that data public. Local leaders said it's critical in an area that's experiencing dramatic growth, more frequent wildfires, and has a geography that creates pollutant trapping temperature inversions during an October 18th press conference. All of those factors have had consequences. In April 2022, the EPA downgraded the Northern Front Range from a serious to a severe violator of federal ozone standards. Heavy industrial users like Commerce City's Suncor Oil Refinery have repeatedly been cited for EPA violations. And earlier this month, the EPA reached a settlement with Suncor around some of those allegations. EPA Regional Administrator Casey Becker said the funds are aimed at helping areas most affected by pollutants. These grants reflect a renewed focus on environmental justice and helping communities that are often overburdened and underserved, she said. In practical terms, these grant projects are significantly enhancing the resolution we have on air quality in places like Commerce City, Golden, Lakewood, Sheridan, and other locations across the metro area. The monitors provide real-time pollutant measurements on public-facing web dashboards, including the Love My Air website. The Love My Air network is also available as a smartphone app. Data from the Love My Air network gives residents real-time access to information that can help them decide if it's safe to exercise outside. For local governments, the data will help guide environmental policy and decisions. Adams County got a $403,000 EPA grant to expand its community air monitoring network across Adams and Arapahoe counties. The sensors measure fine particulate matter, PM2.5 particles, 2.5 micrometers or smaller, 30 times smaller than a strand of hair. Exposure to unhealthy levels of PM2.5 is linked to premature mortality, heart disease, and asthma. Jefferson County got $225,000 to install similar monitoring equipment in several of its underserved communities. The county grants were among nearly $3 million the EPA gave gave to communities and nonprofits statewide for developing real-time air pollutant information in underserved neighborhoods. North Glen already has two air quality monitoring stations that measure PM2.5, one at the Recreation Center and a second at Northwest Open Space. Data from those sensors is live on Love My Air. Quote, this allows residents real-time information about air quality particulate matter right where they live, said Mayor Meredith Lady. We recognize that air quality impacts everyone's quality of life. This includes our ability to enjoy time outside and both our short and long-term health. The grant money is part of the EPA's Inflation Reduction Act funds intended to help local officials, health officials, develop data on air pollutants in their neighborhoods.
Jefferson County officials partner with local businesses to offer discounts to early voters. By Joe Davis. In an effort to get more people to vote early, Jefferson County officials have partnered with businesses to offer discounts. For instance, your early vote can slash your tab at Cochino Taco or the African Bar and Grill in Lakewood. Quote, I would love nothing more than to see our neighborhoods filled with our new I Voted stickers and people celebrating their civic pride, said Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder Amanda Gonzalez. There are so many great businesses in Jeffco who are helping us to celebrate this year, and it's wonderful to have their partnership in this effort. From October 26th to November 1st, head to any business on the participating list after dropping your ballot in the mail, drop box, or voting at a county voting center. Show your I Voted sticker, which are given out at the centers and included with mail ballots. Come in and show your sticker to get a 15% off, said Theodora Osei for Duel. Her business is the African Bar and Grill at 955 South Kipling Parkway, Lakewood. Osei for Duo said, We participate because we believe in voting. Johnny Ballin, owner of Cochino Taco, is also participating in the promotion. Cochino Taco is offering buy one margarita, frozen or tapir, and get the next one free, Ballin said. We are also offering buy one taco, get one free for those who would rather eat than imbibe. The promotion is valid at both Jefferson County Cochino Taco locations, one at 5495 West 20th Avenue in Medgewater, and the other at 7702 Ralston Road in Arvada. Quote, Cochino Taco is participating in the I Voted promotion to reward Jefferson County residents for performing their civic duty, Ballin said. Cochino Taco is also a neighborhood local restaurant that focuses on the community in which it operates. Some businesses participating include the Colorado Tap House at 14982 West 69th Avenue, Arvada, Odyssey Beer Works, Brewery and Tap Room, 5535 West 56th Avenue, number 107, Arvada, Wolf and Wildflower at 7190 West 38th Avenue, Wheat Ridge, NT at 2440 Main Street, Littleton, Brookdale. Brookdale Senior Living at various locations in Jefferson County. There are many others. Each business is running its own promotion for the week, so contact them before you go. Gonzalez hopes the discounts will entice more people to vote early. Quote, with this year's election right around the corner, I'm eager to see great turnout by voters who have a chance to make their voice heard on important issues and candidate races, Gonzalez said. For more information on Early Voting Week, visit votejeffco.com. Robust Laws Against Human Trafficking Hardly Used by Jennifer Brown, The Colorado Sun. Colorado prosecutors landed a single conviction for labor trafficking and fewer than 50 convictions for sex trafficking in 17 years, despite multiple efforts to strengthen state laws. From 2006 to 2022, there have been 267 criminal cases involving trafficking. And within those cases, there were 619 counts of labor trafficking and 10,813 counts of sex trafficking. According to a new report from the Laboratory to Combat 
human trafficking. But very few resulted in convictions. Many of the people initially charged with trafficking ended up being convicted of other crimes, including child abuse, drug charges, or keeping a place of prostitution, found the new report from the Colorado nonprofit. All of the trafficking charges were filed in just 23 of Colorado's 64 counties, which points toward the need for more widespread training among law enforcement and district attorney's offices to identify and prosecute trafficking, the report said. Its authors called on Colorado to strengthen local task forces that work to prevent trafficking and hold traffickers accountable in courts. They also said Colorado needs to do more to include trafficking survivors and those most vulnerable to trafficking, including LGBTQ people, indigenous people, and immigrants. The task force forces need to include people who, quote, reflect and look like the community, because people who need help with food, shelter, and language translation will seek out others they feel comfortable around, said A.J. Alejano Steele, co-founder and research director of the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking. If you have a high population of immigrants from Mexico, does the partnership actually have people who represent that group? She asked. It's hard to go to people for help if they don't look like you. In agricultural areas, the groups should include people who work on farms. And in mountain communities, they should include people who have worked as sheep herders, for example, she said. Sheep herders migrate to Colorado from Chile. Peru and Mexico to work on ranches, and in some cases, find out after they arrive that they are required to work 24 hours per day, seven days a week, the report said. Quote, they live in small campers without electricity, toilets, or running water, it said. Most herders reported having no days off for over a year. These workers have been consistently exploited to the financial benefit of their employers, the very definition of labor trafficking, end quote. Larger jurisdictions are more likely to have officers trained to identify human trafficking and how to interview potential victims. The results show that many counties aren't using state trafficking laws as often as they could be, the report said. Rural counties rarely, if ever, use the statuses. Five counties had 67% of the human trafficking charges filed in the state. In order of case counts, those were Adams, Arapahoe, El Paso, Denver, and Jefferson counties. In a Jefferson County case announced last month, A sheriff's special investigations unit uncovered a human trafficking operation inside a mass massage parlor in Golden. After receiving a report from someone who feared a massage therapist was a trafficking victim, law officers searched the business and discovered that a Chinese citizen had been coerced into performing sex acts in exchange for a green card, authorities said. Colorado statistics show the state has been far more focused on sex cases than labor cases. All but 10 of the 267 cases that resulted in charges in the past 17 years were sex trafficking, the report found. Quote, sex trafficking tends to receive more attention, Alejandro Steele said. There is a, quote, lag in understanding about what labor trafficking looks like, speculating that it's hard 
harder for people to recognize because the effects of it are commonplace in daily life. People are complicit when they buy coffee or fruits and vegetables produced by people who are being trafficked, she said. Quotes, it makes labor trafficking feel a little bit close to home, she said. People who have unstable housing are some of the most at risk for becoming trafficking victims. And traffickers will prey on people who are in shelters or temporary housing because they know that housing will expire. The laboratory is hoping to work with more housing nonprofits so people are trained to help residents avoid being trafficked. Quotes, when you have somebody who is in need of making money, in need of getting a shelter over their head, in need of putting food on the table, you have prime conditions for a trafficker, Alejandro Steele said. If you are desperate, you will follow somebody who is offering you a great a day job. Colorado updated its trafficking laws in 2014, creating the Council Human Trafficking Council and aligning state law with the federal trafficking laws. As a result, the state saw a burst in prosecutions, but the number of prosecutions statewide has declined since then. Prior to 2012, there were just two trafficking convictions. Prior to 2014, there were just two trafficking convictions in Colorado. Additional state laws since 2014 have sought to provide immunity for prostitution offenses for minors who are sex trafficked, create felony level crimes for stealing wages and give agricultural workers the right to state minimum wage overtime and labor organizing. 2022 law established an office for missing and murdered indigenous people who are trafficked at higher rates within the Colorado Department of Public Safety. This story is from Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Primarily Pumpkin Perceptions, Local Life. The Orange Gourd has moved from an inauspicious beginnings to being an autumn staple. By Deb Hurley Brobst. You could call pumpkins an important symbol of autumn. The minute September rolls around, pumpkin appears in every food imaginable from pumpkin spice lattes to soups to pumpkin cereal. Huge cartons of pumpkins arrive in stores as we prepare for fall holidays. But what do we know about pumpkins? How long have they been growing? Do they have other uses than decorations and pie? Why are some pumpkins different from the orange pumpkins we carved as children? Here's your chance to learn more about the orange and sometimes white and even teal gourds. Bitter beginnings. The pumpkin began as a tiny fruit. Yes, pumpkins are fruits. As long as 7,500 to 10,000 years ago in Mexico and Central America, according to Jennifer Ackerfield, head curator of natural history collections at the Denver Botanic Gardens. The original fruit from the Cucurbita family, which is Latin for gourd, was tiny, hard, and round, nothing like today's pumpkins, and the plants were stinky. Historians hypothesize that the fruits were eaten by woolly mammoths, Ackerfield said, and that there were six indigenous species with one species growing now in the Denver Botanic Gardens York Street location. 
while the plant was gross, as Ackerfield put it, the seeds were tasty. The hard fruit was scraped out to use for bowls and cups through years of seed cultivation and seed trading. Pumpkins became larger and oranger, and then other modifications were bred into them. Current pumpkins. Halloween pumpkins are specially bred for size, shape, and the pumpkin wall thickness, so they make better jack-o'-lanterns, according to Eric Hammond, CSU Extension Director for Adams County. Quote, Recently, there has been a lot more interest in unique shapes, sizes, and textures, even those with warty textures, Hammond said. Increasingly, the funky varieties are old-time varieties. We wouldn't call them heirloom pumpkins, but it's in a similar vein. He said pumpkins, like many fruits and vegetables, have a wide genetic diversity, and some plant breeders look for that. Sometimes they find wild varieties that are attractive, and they crossbreed them to get desirable traits, Hammond said. He said, nowadays people are looking for unusual-looking pumpkins, and growers are happy to take advantage of the demand for them. Quotes, unusual-looking pumpkins have always been there, he said. It just, there wasn't a demand for them until recently. If you want your pumpkins to last a lot longer and you are not carving them into jack-o'-lanterns, wipe them with a diluted bleach solution which kills microbes, and the pumpkins will last a lot longer. Hammond said. He advised people to compost their pumpkins after they have outlived their decorative purpose rather than throwing them away so they don't add to landfill waste. Who knew? The largest pumpkin ever grown in Colorado weighed 1,729 pounds, and earlier this month, a pumpkin named Michael Jordan was crowned at the 50th World Championship Pumpkin Weigh-Off in California as the largest pumpkin ever grown, weighing 2,749 pounds. The pumpkin capital of the world is Morton, Illinois, which is the home of Libby's Pumpkin Industry. About 12,300 acres of pumpkins are grown yearly in Illinois, the most of any states, and more than 1.5 billion pounds of pumpkins are grown yearly in the United States, according to the Farmer's Almanac. Pumpkins were once considered a remedy for freckles and snake bites, the Almanac said, and settlers cut the fresh the flesh into strips, dried them, and used them to weave mats. Native Americans grew and ate pumpkins and their seeds long before the pilgrims reached North America. Pilgrims learn how to grow and prepare pumpkins from the Native Americans. Pumpkin was most likely served at the first Thanksgiving feast in 1621, the almanac said. The earliest pumpkin pie made in America was different from today's pumpkin pie. Pilgrims and early settlers made pumpkin pie by hollowing out a pumpkin, filling the shell with milk, honey, and spices, and baking it, the almanac said. Each pumpkin has about 500 seeds, and there are 45 varieties of pumpkins, according to Good Housekeeping magazine. The first jack-o'-lanterns weren't made from pumpkins. Instead... The Irish carved the faces in turnips, and Ackerfield called them very scary-looking. When Irish immigrants moved to America, they found pumpkins more suitable. World's record pumpkins. 
Guinness World Records list 73 pumpkin records. Here are a few. The largest pumpkin pie weighing 3,699 pounds was made by New Bremen Giant Pumpkin Growers in New Bremen, Ohio in 2010. The diameter of the pie was 20 feet. The crust was made of 440 sheets of dough. Steve Clark is the world's fastest pumpkin carver. The teacher in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, holds the record for fastest pumpkin carving at just over 16 seconds. Trevor Hunt holds the record for most pumpkins carved in an hour. He carved 109 pumpkins in 60 minutes, or 33 seconds per pumpkin. The longest journey by paddling in a pumpkin boat is 37.5 miles, achieved by Dwayne Hansen in Nebraska City, Nebraska, in 2022. Why school board elections matter and why you should vote. Local voices. Erica Meltzler, Chalkbeat, Colorado. Every other November, Colorado voters choose the people who make important decisions about their local schools. But in most school districts, very few people vote in these school board elections, and most of them aren't parents of current students. What exactly is a school board, and why should you care about voting in these odd-year elections? Voting for school board members who share your values or perspective make it more likely schools will run in a way that you think is good for kids and your community. If you don't vote... You give that power to other people. In many school district elections, less than a third of eligible voters vote. Sometimes just a few hundred or even a few dozen votes separate the winners and losers. That means every vote matters. In Colorado, school districts are run by elected officials who serve on the school board. School boards usually have five to seven members. The main function of a school board is hiring the superintendent, who is like the chief executive for the school district and responsible for day-to-day running of local schools. School board members supervise and evaluate the superintendent. School board members also vote on the budget and pay raises for teachers and other staff, and they set policies that control what happens in schools. A school board might cast the final vote on whether to close a school with low test scores or too few students, or vote to change budget priorities so the schools have more money. Or a school board might vote to adopt a new curriculum if the old one isn't working well to educate students. School boards also have the final say on many contentious issues. If a student is expelled and the family appeals to keep that student in school or if a teacher is fired and appeals to keep their job, the school board makes the final decision. School boards have voted to opt out of Colorado's comprehensive sex education standards to remove police from schools and to bring police back. Exactly how school boards operate can vary from district to district. For example, in 2020, school boards in some districts voted on whether to move to online learning, while in others, the superintendent made that decision. School board members don't typically get involved in the details of running the district. That's the superintendent's job. 
School board members can't discipline a teacher or principal or directly tell them what to do. They don't set bus, bus routes or decide which routes to cut if there is a driver shortage. School board members don't directly pick which schools to close. In most situations, the superintendent will make a recommendation to the school board. The school board can vote to approve or reject the recommendation or ask for other options. School board members also can raise awareness about problems and ask for policy changes. If enough board members agree, the superintendent will work on that idea. Most school board members are elected by the registered voters in that district. School board members serve staggered four-year terms. On a five-year member board, three of the seats would be up for election one year. Then two years later, the other two seats would open. The Denver School Board has seven members, with four seats open one year and three seats open two years later. Most school boards have term limits, so members can't serve more than eight years total. School boards also have an odd number of members, so they don't end up with a tie. Though, ties can still happen if someone skips a meeting or abstains from a vote. Sometimes a school board member quits in the middle of their term. In that case, the other school board members choose someone to finish the term. Sometimes school districts cancel school board elections because there aren't enough candidates for a contested vote. That saves some money, but means voters don't have a choice in who runs the schools. Whoever volunteered becomes the school board member. Some school districts elect school board members at large. That means each school board member represents the entire district rather than a specific region within it. If your district elects members at large, you'll see all the candidates on the ballot, and you can vote for as many candidates as there are open seats. If there are two open seats, you can vote for two candidates. There are three open seats, you can vote for three candidates, and so on. The top vote-getters serve on the school board. Other school districts are divided into geographical regions, and each school board member represents a region. These school board members have to live in that region. In some school districts, only voters who also live in that region get to vote in those school board races. If that's the case in your district, you'll see just the candidates for your area on the ballots. You can vote for one candidate, and the top vote-getter will represent that region. In other school districts, such as Jeffco and Adams 12, school board members have to live in a certain region, but they have to win election district-wide. Every voter in the school district sees multiple school board races on their ballots, and they'll choose one candidate for each race. Most Colorado school board members are unpaid volunteers. State law school board members to be paid up to $150 a day for official business, and a few school boards, such as Denver and Sheridan, have decided to pay members small stipends. School board that wants to pay its members has to hold a public meeting on the idea and then vote on the pay package. Compensation doesn't go into effect, though, until after the next election. Current board members can't vote to pay themselves and would only get paid if they win re-election. News organizations like Chalkbeat write about many school board elections. Colorado Community Media's newspapers for two dozen communities around the Denver area has information about candidates. You can check your school district website, search for the words school board or board meetings or election. Many school districts list who is running and the dates and times of local candidate forums. 
community groups like the League of Women Voters and educational nonprofits often host forums or panels where you can hear from the candidates in their own words or even ask them questions. You can also check out candidate websites and see how candidates describe themselves and talk about their priorities. Read about the candidates or watch how they answer questions. Think about how their views compare with yours or how their life experience might have prepared them. What connection do they have to local schools? What kinds of work have they done? At the same time, be aware that school board candidates, like all politicians, sometimes use words that sound good to everyone but can mean different things to different people. If a candidate talks about strong neighborhood schools, listening to parents, or supporting teachers, look for more information about what they mean. Colorado School Board elections take place in odd-numbered years on the first Tuesday in November. The next election is November 7, 2023. If you're already a registered voter, look for your ballot in the mail the week of October 16th. If you're not a registered voter, you can find more information about voting here. Chalkbeat is a nonprofit news site covering educational changes in public schools. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Supporting Southwest Denver's Small and Family-Owned Businesses by Frank D. Angeli. From Denverite, I'll be reading Denver Will Close Downtown Streets This Weekend for Safety by Kevin Beattie. And A New Arts and Music Venue is Headed for Aurora's East Colfax Arts District by Lauren Antonoff Hart. From Westward, I'll be reading, Crime Rings Stole Cars from Denver Airport, Used Them as Battering Rams to Swipe ATMs, by Katie Cheshire. And, Second, How's 1000 Encampment Sweep Coming, City Being Secretive on Details, by Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Supporting Southwest Denver's Small and Family-Owned Businesses by Frank D'Angeli Southwest Denver, the area between Colfax Avenue, Florida Avenue, Santa Fe Drive, and Sheridan Boulevard, has long been home to hundreds of small businesses, a number of which are owned and operated by immigrant families residing in the area. After being hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, many that weathered the storm have struggled to regain footing. In an effort to provide relief to these establishments, the West Denver Small Business Coalition, WDSBC, created the West Denver Marketplaces Program in December of 2022. Established in June of 2020, the coalition represents an effort by several local leaders to support and advocate for the area's small businesses, and the Marketplaces Program was formulated to do just that. In 2021, WDSBC conducted a survey of 217 businesses in the area. Of these, 78% said their business was doing okay or was struggling some, and 52% said their business was doing worse as a result of COVID-19. 
Many respondents listed access to grants and funding and an improved digital presence as some of their greatest needs. The West Denver Marketplaces program seeks to address these needs directly. The program is twofold. Help these businesses navigate an arduous grant and loan application process and assist them in marketing to a broader audience. Describing the grant and loan applications for small enterprises, Anissa Juarez, planning manager for Denver Housing Authority, said, The biggest issue is access. Southwest Denver is known for being highly multicultural, and a lot of applications are only available in English. Applicants may not be able to figure out how to get onto an online portal, and if it's in a different language, forget it. Juarez also said that this difficulty can be compounded when the few employees a business may have are focused on running the business, up to 12 hours a day, often seven days per week. Organizations like NewsEd and Mile High United Way are among those partners lending a hand in these hard-to-navigate grant and loan applications. To spread the word about the business community in West Denver, WDSBC compiled a directory of these small businesses on the program's website, westdenvermarketplaces.com. This directory consolidates a variety of businesses, ranging from restaurants to auto shops to art galleries, into an easy, accessible virtual guide. Additionally, the coalition has filmed and posted promotional videos for 12 businesses, with more planned for the near future. Another key portion of the West Denver Marketplaces program is the creation of a gift card initiative. Also available on the website, the program allows patrons to purchase one gift card to use at any of the 117 different businesses in the area. Juarez said that even though this program is in its early stages, the gift card option has already brought thousands of dollars directly to member businesses. According to Juarez, a driving factor behind the effort to support local enterprise is to mitigate displacement of residents through preservation and stabilization of businesses. When you look at the data of southwest Denver, it has a higher percentage of doubled-up households than any other part of the city, meaning that people who are living in southwest Denver are at significant risk of displacement and becoming homeless, Juarez said. We want to make sure that we have continued investment coming to this area, and one of the ways we're doing that is with this gift card. Another reason to patronize these businesses? They're awesome. The area has some of the most culturally authentic businesses and people who live there, Juarez said. The restaurants, these are recipes that came from owners' great-grandparents in Vietnam or in Mexico or other parts of the world, which is really neat to be able to, to experience. These are mom-and-pop shops that really genuinely care. Moving forward, Juarez would like to see continued funding for the West Denver Marketplaces program, as well as a steady flow of new businesses to the area. A lot of people ask, how can I support locally? How can I support small businesses? And I'm hoping that if we continue to bring awareness to the program, this is the way that they'll know how. The next two articles are from Denverite. Denver will close downtown streets this weekend for safety by Kevin Beattie. Denver is ginning up ways to deal with violence at night downtown. 
This weekend, the city will shut down one block each of Larimer and Market Streets in Lodo to give that strategy a try. The move is in response to requests from residents and businesses to better manage crowds and vehicle volumes and improve safety in the area, particularly as Halloween approaches, the Denver Police Department said in a statement. The result will be an elimination of vehicles on these blocks where people tend to gather in the late night and early morning hours. Removing traffic flow and parked vehicles from these two blocks will also increase officers' visibility of potentially dangerous or illegal activity occurring so that it can be addressed quickly. Market will be closed between 19th and 20th streets. Larimer will be closed between 20th and 21st streets. Violent crimes per 100,000 residents reached a six-year high last July, according to data collected by DPD, though department spokesperson Doug Shepman told us that, overall, violent incidents dipped 2.48% between January and October of last year compared to the same time frame this year. Still, City Council member Daryl Watson, who made a joint statement with his colleagues on the road closure plan, said people who work and live in Lodo have been demanding some sort of action. Each council office was reached out to and was in discussion with folks in lower downtown, he told us. The ideas are coming from the neighbors. We'll find out this weekend if the closures make any impact. If it does, the city might expand on this pilot and close streets more often when lots of people head downtown to party. The experiment comes as Mayor Mike Johnston tries to bring more business back to the city's central core and help businesses there bounce back from a lingering pandemic slump. Watson, who said he does not have a costume for this Halloween weekend, said he and his, and his colleagues want to try out more ideas like this. We believe that we want to try anything and everything, and this is one of the things we're going to try, he said. We want folks to come downtown. We want them to have a fantastic time. A new arts and music venue is headed for Aurora's East Colfax Arts District by Lauren Antonoff Hart. A new arts and music venue is coming to life in the Aurora Cultural Arts District. The space will contain a bar, a stage, artist studio spaces, and a podcasting and recording studio. It will host music and art shows, as well as yoga, movement, and meditation classes and other community events. But before it can flourish as a gathering place, its creator says the project needs community investors to bring the project to life. Manos Sagrados is the newest venture of Alicia Bruce Trujillo, and it aims to be a community hub for Chicano, Latin, and Native communities, as well as a safe space for black, queer, female, and disabled creators. It's Trujillo's first time tackling a project like this, after her many years as a leader in Colorado's music scene. Trujillo has served as program or music director for Indy 102.3, Swallow Hill Music, and KGNU Radio, and is a current commissioner for the Denver Commission on Cultural Affairs, as well as an active board member for the Biennial of the Americas. Earlier this year, I was thinking about different ways that I could show up in community, Trujillo said. In February, she went on a Biennial of the Americas trip to Mexico City for Mexico City Art Week. She was deeply inspired by the art that she saw and the group of Denver creatives that she was traveling with. 
Hearing about the challenges they faced and the things they hoped to accomplish made her think, I just want to be able to create something that is able to house all of that and be a safe space for our community. A few months later, she found herself discussing a potential project at the People's Building, an Aurora performance venue and event space. There, she wondered aloud, oh, maybe someday I want to start my own venue. To which Aaron Vega, the curator for the People's Building, pointed out that the building next door was up for rent. Since then, Trujillo says, everything has really been falling into place. Our name, Manos Sagrados, Trujillo explains, means sacred hands. For those who speak Spanish, though, they know that our name is not grammatically correct. We should be Manos Sagrados, as Manos is a female word. But as we are a queer-owned business, I wanted to do some wordplay with the expectations surrounding who we are, the communities we serve, and how we show up. To help her execute her mission, Trujillo has been putting together a wonderful team of people who really know what they're doing. This includes co-owner David Medina, venue operations director Amy Howard, production director Benito Flores, programming director Janae Donaldson, and studio manager Diego Flores Arroyo. Mano Sagrados hopes to open by the end of 2023. Right now, the team is preparing by building a bar, painting, and building a ramp that will make the space ADA accessible. We are very excited to work in Aurora, specifically for a few reasons, Trujillo says. There are over 160 different languages spoken within the square mile that we are serving. So, being able to be a part of that and program based on community needs is huge. Plus, there aren't any live music venues along that stretch of Colfax, according to Trujillo. And we can't wait to be that outlet for the arts district there. Manos Sagrados will be located near the Aurora Fox Arts Center, Lady Justice Brewing Company, and Bon and Butter Bakery Cafe at 9975 East Colfax Avenue. Manos Sagrados has been approved for a small business loan of up to $100,000. But instead of borrowing the money from a bank, Trujillo is doing things differently. She's using honeycomb credit and recruiting community investors, who will be paid back over the course of 36 months with 12.5% interest instead. It isn't a donation, Trujillo clarifies. It's kind of like crowdfunding, but you invest and we pay you back instead of a bank. Similar to crowdfunding, Trujillo and her team have a limited amount of time to raise the money. They hope to meet their $100,000 goal by November 28th. Honeycomb Credit has set the project's minimum at $50,000, meaning they need to raise at least $50,000 to receive any money, and they will be loaned however much they are able to raise between $50,000 and $100,000. But Trujillo is cautiously optimistic. I have such a supportive community in Denver and into Aurora, she says. Plus, there are just so many artists and people who want to see something like this happen. The following articles are from Westward. Crime Ring stole cars from Denver Airport, used them as battering rams to swipe ATMs, by Katie Cheshire. It's a scene out of a heist movie. Thirteen people, all allegedly working together and communicating through social media, 
get busted by Colorado authorities for stealing cars and using them as battering rams to commit even bigger crimes, according to the 17th Judicial District Attorney's Office, like swiping ATMs. DA Brian Mason spoke to Westward this week about the alleged terror spree and auto theft ring, which was uncovered during an investigation that lasted from February of 2022 to March of 2023, with over 50 vehicles being stolen from car dealerships in Denver International Airport during that span, and more than 30 burglaries committed or attempted. These are dangerous crimes that have a real impact on the victim, Mason says, and we're doing something about that. Late last month, an Adams County grand jury indicted the alleged car thieves on over 120 counts of racketeering and participating in the criminal enterprise, theft, conspiracy, burglary, aggravated motor, motor vehicle theft, vehicular eluding, owning or operating a chop shop, and possession of a dangerous weapon. One member was charged with only two crimes, while the other 12 racked up the other charges. All but four of the individuals are currently in custody. The suspects that are at large are located in the U.S. and Mexico, but the 17th Judicial District didn't specify where. When somebody goes to Denver International Airport, parks their car in a parking lot, and heads out on a trip to fly somewhere, they shouldn't have to worry that the car isn't going to be there when they get back, Mason says. Auto thieves have been terrorizing the metro area and the entire state of Colorado, stealing cars and then using those cars to commit other crimes, even bigger crimes, as alleged in this indictment. The group allegedly favored Ford F-150 trucks, Colorado's most stolen vehicle, which they would then use to ram into businesses and steal ATMs. It took a group of public servants to catch the criminals, with Mason and the DA's office working with the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority, CATPA, the CATPA Metropolitan Auto Theft Task Force, the Auto Theft Intelligence Coordination Center, beat auto theft through law enforcement, and the Colorado State Patrol to bust them. They're all our grantee-ism, and they work together all the time, but this was a really great chance where they were able to showcase some of their fantastic work through their collaboration, said Cale Gould, statewide public outreach coordinator for CATPA. CATPA is a grants unit within the Colorado State Patrol that, since 2009, has collected a $1 fee on auto insurance policies, which it then uses to make yearly grants for initiatives related to preventing auto theft in the state. For this investigation, CATPA grants covered salary and overtime hours dedicated to the work. The alleged crimes took place across Colorado, in Adams, Arapahoe, Broomfield, Boulder, Denver, Jefferson, and Logan counties. However, the nexus was in Adams County, so the 17th Judicial District, which oversees it, took the lead on prosecution, Mason says. These alleged crimes happened all over the metro area, but most of them have some sort of connection to Adams County, he explains. That either means the cars were stolen in Adams County, or they were brought to Adams County after they were stolen. According to the indictment, the auto theft ring would share profits from their crimes and swap devices back and forth that they used to break into vehicles and disable GPS systems. The group would then use those cars to steal ATMs, 
but also frequently took vaping devices, the indictment says. Vehicles are tools, like they are for you and me, Gould says, and we take them from point A to point B to get to work every day. Well, this group was using these vehicles as a literal battering ram to then facilitate these other crimes. The case first came to CATPA through the Colorado Independent Dealers Association, whose members realized they had experienced several similar car thefts. From there, the investigation took off. The 13 members of the crime ring were all connected through social media or cell phones and, according to the indictment, regularly used those means to communicate about criminal activity. The indictment details each alleged offense, but one example illustrating the group's methods occurred between September and October of 2022. In September, a Dodge Challenger was stolen from a citizen in Arapahoe County. On October 3rd, law enforcement found the Challenger and fitted it with a tracking device. The 2013 Dodge Challenger was recovered by law enforcement on October 25, 2022, after it was utilized to pick up individuals involved in a burglary who were fleeing police, the indictment explains. On that day, members of the group allegedly broke into Modified Madness Tattoo and a Save-A-Lot in Adams County and the Hilton Garden Hotel and Leedsdale Liquor in Arapahoe County. The group also hit an Alta Conoco gas station in Denver before being pursued by police from Pond King in Arapahoe County while driving an F-150, according to the indictment. From there, they switched to the Challenger before finally being caught. The suspects were taken into custody and identified as Hector Escalera Hernandez, Cesar Poblano, Brian Valadares, Rodrigo Perez Gonzalez, the indictment says. There were also three juveniles. It was common for members of the group to help each other during heists to avoid police contact, the indictment adds. Means of evading the police included firing gunshots to draw away police attention, committing vehicular eluding, and picking each other up with when an individual would flee police from a stolen vehicle, it alleges. Law enforcement frequently found guns in vehicles stolen by the individuals. During the investigation, the team used DNA evidence, something that's not typically done for property crimes, Gould says. If there was extensive forensic work being done on a large scale on property crimes, it would create a huge backup in our laboratories, he explains. Due to the nature of this case, how it was being worked through our Metropolitan Auto Theft Task Force, extensive forensics was done and performed both by a private entity as well as the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. The investigation included fingerprint analysis and vehicle forensics, like examining items left behind in stolen vehicles that were later recovered. Authorities discovered that members of the group would often connect their phones to the infotainment systems of vehicles, allowing law enforcement to identify the phone numbers of some of the people who were allegedly involved. For example, three members connected their phones to a 2019 Ford Raptor that was stolen from DIA, according to the indictment. Several got together to allegedly swipe a Bentley Continental worth over $63,000. Other vehicles that were stolen had lower values, the indictment says, like a Jeep Wrangler valued at $8,400 and a Dodge Ram worth $21,000.
Mason says this case is just one illustration of the way car theft negatively impacts people of all income levels. Motor vehicle theft 